the idea tonight is, is that we, um, we're going to talk about sin. Uh, again, this is defiance of the, the church planting gurus who say don't talk about anything uh, negative. Uh, but it's not my fault. We're just going through Romans, and Romans starts a little bit heavy. Um, and it's kind of what I love about just going through the Bible piece by piece. Is you can't skip parts. Um, if you uh, if you stick around here long enough, uh, what you're di- going to discover is that I only really have like three sermons, and I just kind of cycle through them, and I'll fill in different stories or different passages. But really, there, there's only a couple sermons. Uh, there's the one about being missionaries, and <laughs> there's the one. Uh, tonight about how um, sin is strong, but Jesus is stronger, and you're just going to hear the same things recycled all the time, because really, I think the Bible, the, the story of Scripture is really simple. Um, it's a, the, the gospel, and then our response to the gospel. And so I'll, I'll just keep hitting those from different angles and with different stories, and uh, I make no apologies for that. Like, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here or anything. Um, let me take you to the finish line tonight, okay? Where I'm trying to get you tonight is that sin is a reality. It's not just a, um, a descriptive word, but it's actually something that, that is happening um, in our lives that throws the whole cosmos into <coughs> imbalance. It messes everything up. Uh, and, and because of that, God's wrath is being poured out against Mankind. And my hope tonight is, is to see sin is huge and serious and we can't mess around with sin, um, but then use that knowledge then to drive us deeper into grace because they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, Dorothy Sayers has a, a great quote. She says, uh, if men will not understand the meaning of judgment, then they'll never come to understand the meaning of grace. And so we have to spend some time just, just soaking in what, what is judgment and why and, and what does our sin do to us. And, and then in understanding that, grace seems that much sweeter. Um, there's been a, a, a metaphor I've heard about salvation in that people go, go walk to, don't walk, take a bus, get to get to the coast, right? Uh, maybe the Oregon coast, or uh, better yet, start in Seattle, Puget Sound, um, and uh, swim to Hawaii. Um, if, if you put 10, even the best swimmers in the world, you put them on, on the coast of the United States and say, swim to Hawaii, uh, none of them are gonna make it. That's pretty obvious. I mean, the, even the best distance swimmers could make it about a tenth of the way to Hawaii, uh, and then they'd drown, and it would be sad. Um, it wouldn't be that sad if it was Ryan uh, Lochte. Was, sorry. Um, if somebody told you from the coast of the United States that you have to swim to Hawaii, the only way that you're possibly going to make it there is if somebody pulls up next to you in a boat, right? And the, the captain of of this boat is Jesus. This is the, the metaphor, right? You, you cannot swim there yourself. You have to get in somebody's boat. You have to be carried there. And the only, person, the only people that get there are the ones who realize, I can't get there. And they get in the boat. And so maybe tonight all that we're going to establish is that it's a really long ways from California to Hawaii. And it's a really long ways from where we stand today to Judgment Day. 
And we are not going to get there if we don't get involved. Sin is strong. I think that we love scary stories because they make home seem that much more warm and safe. Right? Uh, I want to ask Kate to come up and, and read the passage tonight. It's a little bit longer, so I won't make you stand and read it. But uh, it's Romans 1. You can open up verse 18 through 30, uh, through 32. Sorry. Make sure that you're reading along in your own Bibles. We want God's word to speak to us here. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a de debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous, righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh. This is a heavy passage, uh, and I think needs to be treated properly. We need to take the time really to, uh, to accept what, what Paul is saying here, what God is saying to us through Paul, uh, and, and allow it to work on us rather than us trying to work on it and form, form Scripture to our points of view. We need to allow Scripture to form our point. I want to start first by explaining the concept of, of revelation. He, in, in verse 18, it says the, the wrath of God is being revealed. And uh, uh, so I want to start with explaining that, that God has revealed something. Uh, the word revelation just means something has been revealed. Uh, what Paul is going to say in, in the first verse that we're in, verse 18, is that uh, 
God can hold people accountable for their sin, and, and rightfully so, because he warned them, because he revealed the truth to them. So he goes, God's wrath is revealed because God's truth has been revealed and we ignored it. And so because of that, men are without excuse. In what way has, has God's truth been revealed? Well, there's really two ways. Uh, the first way is, is named in these verses as something that we would call general revelation. Have you heard the term before? So general revelation uh, is uh, contained really in verse 20 where he says, uh, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world from what has been made. Uh, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen from what has been made. This is general revelation. That you can simply look around at, at creation, the things have been made, uh, and say two things. That there is a God, and he is extremely powerful. Uh, the experiment to prove this is really simple. Go for a walk. Uh, you'll prove my point for your, yourself. Go, go walk through uh, the forest, right? And, and pick up a pine needle. Uh, it's the simplest thing I can think of. And there's billions of pine needles in any given forest. You, you walk through, you pick one up, and I would challenge you, hold that in one hand, and in your other hand, create one from nothing. Um, even, even create, some, create one from pre-existing materials. Take, take some dirt and, and form it and shape and mold it into a pine needle. You've got one, it takes a long time because uh, the materials don't cooperate. But get yourself one, and then look at how there are a thousand needles on every branch, and there are a thousand branches on every tree, and there are a thousand trees in every forest, and there are a thousand forests on every continent. And, and then you start to go, there is a God, and he is extremely powerful. Or uh, look around uh, on a crowded street. Uh, start even uh, with yourself. Consider the human body, which is easily the most complex thing in all of creation. Easily. There are more uh, neurons in your brain than there are stars in the sky. Um, uh, your, uh, consider your eyes. Just the, the way that light comes in and it gets flipped and it gets spun all around and then translated into um, messages to your brain where you go, uh, Matt is over here and if I need to exit, it's back there. And, uh, and the lights are coming down, and those lights reflect off of things and create colors, and so because of colors, I can differentiate depth. Um, your eyes are, are just unbelievable. You, your ability to recover after being injured. Uh, I, I've been injured a lot, um, and I'm not a, like a genetic marvel or anything, but my bones put themselves back together. Um, my skin, if you, if you could speed it up, like a video of a cut, it, it glues itself back together. In fact, on, on a uh, way, like, zoomed-in, sped-up molecular camera, what you see are molecular engines, uh, little pieces from this side and from this side that are reaching for the other and grabbing and pulling back together. You're a genetic freak. Um, every, I mean, all of us are. Think about your digestive system which takes the flesh of different animals and breaks it down into enzymes which can be turned into protein and, and those proteins can be used to fuel your flesh. Um, and then it rejects what it doesn't need because it's a very efficient machine. 
that's a poop joke. Um, think about your uh, reproductive system or your nervous system or all the, the billions of, of things that are happening in my body right now. From my brain to my mouth to my hands, which won't stop moving. I'm really sorry about this. I, I talk with my hands. Uh, my feet are pacing. Literally, there are synapses firing all the time. Your body is unbelievable. But now I challenge you to sit by a busy street. Sit by the freeway when hundreds of thousands of cars pass by. And go, every single one of them is filled with more neurons than there are stars in the sky. And just the observation alone will make you go, there is a God, and he is extremely powerful. This is called general revelation. There's enough um, written just in, in what we can see with our eyes and experience in our lives that, that God goes, you got enough material. You're without excuse. You've, you, you've seen enough. Your brain can't hardly contain it. Um, even the person who has nothing else to go on could look at nature, just walk outside and go, there is a God and he's extremely powerful. Now, um, special revelation, that's a, our second kind of, of revelation. This is where God chooses to, to go outside of nature and express himself um, in a specific way because he wants to show you something special about himself. This happened, this is what the Bible is, is, is special revelation. Every time God comes to a prophet and he goes, tell my people this, that's special revelation. Uh, that gets us the rest of the way from going, there is a God and he's extremely powerful. That moves us all the rest of the way into going, um, God is who he says he is. God has revealed himself. Uh, to add, we go, uh, he has a standard that we have fallen short of. Um, we need a savior. We need to be filled with his spirit. All these things that we, we glean from scripture. That's him taking us from point A of there is a God and he's extremely powerful into point B. He has a plan for us. He has a calling for us. He has a standard that we've fallen short of. We need a savior. We need a spirit. This again puts us in that position of a swimmer trying to get to Hawaii. Like, good luck. We, we, we can start with the understanding there is a God, and he's extremely powerful, and now we go, he has a standard for me, and I've fallen short of it, and now I'm, I'm just that swimmer standing on the beach going, I'm never going to get there. In, in Bible college, we talked a lot about a woman who has no name. Uh, she lives in Nepal somewhere. Uh, Keith probably remembers this, the, the hypothetical woman who lives in a mountain in no, Nepal. Just and we'll never hear the gospel, and what, what do you do with her? Like, where does she go on Judgment Day? Think about it. Where does she go? Paul answered that question in verse 1. Regardless of, of who, what she has been told, she has enough. Right? Paul says she is without excuse. Through, through general revelation alone, God says... You got enough to go on. You can't stand before the throne and go, I, I just didn't know. He'll say, did you walk through a forest? Did you consider your eyes or your digestive system or your nervous system? Um, the, just as a side note, the solution to that conversation that we had all the time in Bible college is that that had better fuel your fire as a missionary, right? She, that woman who 
has no name and it has no face, but, but this, this hypothetical person needs Jesus. She needs somebody to come and, and preach it to. The, the, the scripture says that how will they believe unless they hear, and how will they hear unless somebody goes and preaches? Beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And so this should fuel our fire to go, I'm a missionary, and I cannot keep this good news to myself. I cannot keep it to myself. This comes back kind of to our strategy here uh, at Antioch. I know I'm never going to be a missionary to Nepal. I'll, I'll just say that. Uh, I don't speak the language. I don't know anything about the culture. I would be the worst missionary ever to Nepal. But I'm a great missionary to Spokane. And maybe there's somebody in Spokane who is a great missionary to India. Maybe they're here from India and they speak the language and they know the culture. And they'll go back to India and be a missionary there. And there's somebody there who's gonna be a great missionary to Pakistan because they, they've got connections there and they know the language. And there's somebody in Pakistan that can get to Nepal and that knows that woman. And so through this six degrees of separation, I can influence somebody who can influence somebody who can influence somebody who can get to that woman. That, this has to be like kindling for the fire to go talk to your neighbor. You don't have to get across the world, you have to get to your neighbor. And they can get to their neighbor, and this is, this, this is our approach. If you feel like, if you want to be a missionary to Nepal, let's talk, because we need missionaries to Nepal. But more likely, you just need to be a missionary to your workplace, and to your family, and to your community. And there's somebody there that will become a missionary to their workplace, and their family, and their community will spread through the world like that. Um, this section uh, starts by saying God has revealed his truth to everyone, men are without excuse, and because they persist in unrighteousness and ungodliness, God's wrath is being poured out. God's wrath is something that we don't like to talk about very much, uh, but it is every bit as real as his grace. Uh, in fact, God's wrath is the reason that we need God's grace. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from the wrath of God, which is revealed against unrighteousness, which unrighteousness is totally my little name. Like this is, uh, we cannot get away from this identity. Scripture says we, we are slaves to sin. You, you can't not sin even if you try. We are always just teetering on the brink of falling off this cliff into a bottomless pit of our own making. This is what sin does. At the bottom of that pit is God's good and right hot flames of justice. That's, that's a great like punk band name, I think. Uh, just Cody and I brainwave there. I think that's what he was thinking. Uh, there's a great uh, sermon Jonathan Edwards says that sin is like a rock falling through the air and our best attempts to stop it is like a spider web like good luck stopping a rock uh, we can't bear the weight of our own sin and if we don't get some help from an outside source that rock is going to squish something You, again, 
are your own worst enemy. The biggest problem that you will ever face looks at you in the mirror every single morning. The biggest problem is one of your own making. It's the sin in your life. We try to, we try to read scripture and we go, well, there's God's side and there's Satan's side. But uh, I read scripture to say that, that God is opposed to the old man. Uh, Romans is going to talk about the old man and the new man. The old man is, is one of worldliness and licentiousness and just opposed to God and, and God's wrath is being poured out against that man. Now the, the devil is real and he influences things but not every sin that you commit just comes straight from the devil. Most of that comes from you. Most of that comes from my own idolatry, my own desires, my own sin. Paul continues from that point. He goes, God's wrath is being poured out against the unrighteousness, the ungodliness of mankind. Um, and he starts to talk about what specific kind of sin we get ourselves caught in. Uh, we can read that in verse 21 through 25. Uh, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their own heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Uh, I'm convinced that all of our sin finds its roots in idolatry. All of it. What I mean by that, idolatry is craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied in uh, anything that you treasure more than you treasure God. That's what I would call uh, idolatry. Paul uh, will correlate that in Colossians 3. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, idolatry is desiring, craving, uh, enjoying, being satisfied in anything more than you treasure God. And frankly, we're all um, guilty of this. Why do people steal? On a philosophical level, why does a thief steal? <coughs> maybe because uh, out of need, you know, maybe you're thinking of Aladdin and, and Abu, like taking a, a loaf of bread or something, but um, the, the person that walks into the mall and walks out with a new t-shirt, like, why? Because uh, in that moment, they are more satisfied by possessing that object than they are satisfied by obeying God. In that moment, what's more important to them than God's will is their own desires. Right? They've put their own uh, desire as an idol before God. They want that thing more than they want Him. Why do men abuse their wives? Because they are more satisfied in that moment by the momentary feeling of power than they are satisfied by God. This is idolatry. Why do we give in to sinful passivity, choosing to punt on our responsibilities as God's people? Because we're more satisfied by momentary comfort than we are satisfied by walking in God's plan. 
Now, most of the time, we're not aware of this. We, we don't dig deep enough under our actions to realize the cause of them. But at the root of all of your sin is that you're choosing something over God. And sometimes it's choosing power or comfort or love, or most of the time it's yourself, let's be honest. Um, when we choose these things, when we want them more than we want what God wants, it's, it's idolatry. We're, we're serving another God the God of comfort, or the God of power, or the God of sex, or the God of um, self. Colossians 3, uh, 5 and 6. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Um, he says, these sins, and he lists off a couple of our, our most prevalent sins. He goes, these are idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Uh, John Calvin once said that, that the heart of man is a, an idol factory. We find something that gives us satisfaction or pleasure, and we chase that thing at the expense of chasing the true source of satisfaction, which is God, and all of a sudden, we've built ourselves an idol. The problem is that these false idols don't really give any lasting satisfaction, right? Like, we even have a phrase, the new car smell. <laughs> How long does that last? It doesn't last as long as your payments last, I promise you that. Um, when I was 14, I could not wait to get an iPod. These things came out, and uh, I, some of you are from the era of LPs, and like uh, I'm from the era of uh, CDs. You had to carry around a, a wallet of, of CDs. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I had a, a Walkman that was about this big, and if I wore baggy enough pants, I could put it in the back pocket. Um, and had the cool wraparound back headphones. Um, the problem was you can't carry much music with you unless you have that wallet of CDs and like a backpack. So Apple came out with this iPod which said that they could put 20 CDs in one thing that's like this big and I just had to have it. I couldn't afford a real iPod so I wanted a knockoff iPod, you know what I'm talking about. So. Um, I saved up, uh, I think I was mowing the lawn at my dad's shop at that point, uh, and saved up for probably longer than I saved up for anything else uh, up to that point in my life. Um, went into Radio Shack and bought this knockoff MP3 player. Took forever to figure out how to load songs onto it. Uh, right? You had to get special software, and then you had to get the songs onto, the, you had to rip the songs from the CD onto the computer. It was a nightmare. Thank the Lord for technological progression. Now I can download whatever I want for free. Just kidding, I know do that. Sometimes I do that. Um, I found that MP3 player, not joking, six months after I bought it, I found it at the bottom of a drawer in my room. And I remember being surprised, like, oh, I love this thing. But it had lost its value to me so quickly that I lost it and forgot all about it. This is, this is the problem with building false idols, is that the satisfaction that comes from them is fleeting, and most of the time it's just a mirage. It doesn't, it's, it's not real satisfaction, and it's just gone. 
when I got married, I obsessed about how good life was going to be after marriage, right? And, and my life has been good. My wife is amazing. But even a great wife makes a terrible guy. And sometimes we put our, our spouse onto that pedestal, right? We, we make them an idol. The things that we want most in life become our idols. And I'm sorry, but even a great wife is a terrible God. Do, do any of these things really satisfy long term? I think the answer is no. Like, ask Tom Brady. Uh, he of married to the supermodel Giselle, and he's got how many Super Bowl rings? Ask him how satisfied he is. Because I, I can pull up a video, I'll, I'll show you on YouTube, where he's going, man, I don't know, it just feels like something's missing. He's an adult. He's an idiot. Um, the greatest quarterback ever. And he'll go, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's this, just this hole. This is the problem with chasing idols, is that they'll never satisfy like they promise to satisfy. That new car promises to, to be perfect right up until it's not. Um, and that MacBook Pro that I couldn't, like, couldn't wait to have and obsessed over for like a week is now just another tool in the backpack. We know about Old Testament idolatry. Like there's some crazy stories in Old Testament. This will make you laugh. You know how long the Ten Commandments lasted? Moses goes up on the hill and God uses his own finger to draw the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. You know how long they lasted? Long. 20 verses. Because when he's coming down the hill, they hear noise and people are like, are we under attack? And Moses is like, ah, this is a little suspect. He comes around the corner and his brother-in-law is making a golden calf out of people's earrings and he takes these hand-carved tablets and smashes them. Has to go up and be like, can I get some more? Um, true story. Go and read it. Um, uh, Moses goes up exact, that's paraphrase. Uh, he, he goes up the mountain. He spends a couple days with God. Uh, he gets the Ten Commandments and the people down below literally cannot, they're within eyesight of God's glory. And they can't refrain long enough to go, let's just wait for Moses to come down. And they go, I don't know, maybe something happened to him. Aaron, can you give us a new God? Like they're watching God at work. And I, I read that and go, you're an idiot. And then I look at my own life and go, you're an idiot. It's, it's good because it's true. They can still see the glory of God. They are days removed from God parting the Red Sea. But Aaron, whether it's out of cowardice or insecurity or just wants to please people and makes his golden calf, Moses comes down, smashes them in a rage. This is just a, a microcosm of our idolatry. God is present. You don't even have to look that far and you'll see him at work. And yet we're constantly going, where is my satisfaction coming from? Where is my identity coming from? This is the source of our sin. We, we can see his faithfulness and his activity in our lives, and we still go, I think I need to find a new thing to center my life around. Our house churches, I believe, will be really helpful in this kind of conversation, because later this week we're gonna, we've got some diagnostic questions for you to figure out what's your idol. Because 
all of us have, uh, in, uh, in, some people would call them besetting sins. Like for me, uh, it's, it's the idol of control. Uh, that's the thing that, that I put up on a pedestal and, and I want everything to be in my grip and under my control. And I go, if, if I can just get everything under my control, everything will be fine. As though that has ever worked out before. Uh, part of being in, in a house church is learning in community and learning next to somebody that you can then go, hey, John, I know that your idol is control. And Two weeks from, from now, you're going, hey, John, I see you trying to control something that's not yours to control. That kind of accountability is God's own words into us. This is, this is your opportunity to be a missionary to me and to one another. This is why you need to be in a house church, get connected. Um, we even, so this will convict those of you that, that have been in church for a long time, we, we turn churches really into uh, idol factories. We make idols out of different things in churches, don't we? Like I had a really compelling conversation the other day with a, a pastor from a Lutheran church who he goes, uh, you grew up Church of Christ, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, you guys are like obsessed with doctrine. I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing. It's like, I think you love doctrine more than you love Jesus. Like, we turn doctrine into an idol when we love it more than we love Jesus. The other churches um, they turn method, uh, methodology into an idol. We, we are at risk of that when we go, we're a, a church of house churches. When we love that more than we love Jesus, we've created a, an idol out of something good. It's not, it's not a bad thing, but we can make it a bad thing. Churches that... Uh, that go, if we can just have a great, compelling service, if we can just have the best building, if we can just preach convicting messages, um, all of those are good things, but when we turn them into God things, we're missing the point, and we're missing it badly. My prayer for Ania is that we not fall into this trap of loving anything more than we love our Savior. And I think that we have to be constantly vigilant because this is the default nature of our heart. It's just to take the things that we enjoy and the things that we find satisfaction in and go, that's the ultimate thing. If we can just do that, everything's fine. I remember uh, in, in youth ministry, I had counseling with this young lady uh, who was just broken up. And, and I really believe that, that, that like grief and, and hardship is the perfect opportunity for the gospel. Like, if you come to me with tears in your eyes, you guarantee you're going to talk, we're talking about Jesus. So, um, I just, into her hardship, I go, listen, God loves you, God has a plan for you, God has called uh, you out of this, and, and he has a future for you. And I just pleaded with her for like 45 minutes. And, and towards the end, uh, she said something that I will never forget. Uh, she goes, that's good, but what good is it if, if I can't be popular? And I realized at that moment, popularity for her is, is the idol. That's the thing that she's chasing the most. But I really think if, if we dug deep enough, really with any of us, I could tell you all about the, the goodness of God and, and the value of being part of his church, 
And at the end of it, you go, well, that's good, but what good is it if I can't be successful by my parents' measure? If I can't be uh, comfortable enough to enjoy my life? If I can't be, uh, live up to the, the standard that somebody set before me? These are our, our idols. For the rest of the chapter, uh, Paul outlines some of the forms that these take. So he, uh, he started by saying they exchange the glory of God for uh, the created things. They've exchanged the creator for the created. The worst mistake in history, and yet we keep repeating it. Um, and so for the rest of the chapter, he'll, he'll break it down into very specific things uh, that, uh, that, we, that our rebellion does, uh, the, the forms that our rebellion takes. Uh, like, uh, for each of us, it takes a different form, right? What, what form does your rebellion take? I've told you mine is in the area of control, and that manifests itself in pride and in, like, freaking out when things are over my head and stressing about things that I have no reason to stress over. Um, but this text lays out a lot of different things. He, he starts with sexual sin. Uh, can I just say that while we're talking about idols, sexual sin, there's, there's not a bigger idol in Western culture right now than the bedroom. Almost every conversation that we have at a national level is about sexual identity, sexual ethics, uh, sexual attraction, sexual addiction. Like, this is, this is our national obsession. And it's an idol. Essentially, uh, what we've decided to say is that God can be in charge of these other things, but not when it comes to the bedroom. And, and I'll talk about this tonight because the Bible talks about it. Uh, but uh, I really believe this is a, a conversation that needs to be had um, regularly and personally. Okay? Um, this is the beauty of going through the Bible verse by verse is that God gets to have his say rather than John getting his say. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I don't want to pull his words out of context to match my views. I want to line up my views with his words. And so in this passage, he says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committed shameless acts with men, and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Our culture, again, is obsessed with sex. Um, this, by the way, is the area that I see most clearly, verse 32, where he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And in the area uh, of uh, homosexuality, sexual ethics, sexual, sexual attraction, sexual liberation, sexual freedom, sexual addiction, all of these, we, not only do we fall into that trap, but we're applauding while other people fall off the cliff too. I want to say this carefully and with uh, a pastor's heart, is that God has a plan for sexuality. And the plan is not that our entire life would be focused around it. One man and one woman for life, that's Scripture's plan. And within that covenant, there's great joy and freedom. 
God's desire is that we, as that this would reflect our relationship with God, a faithfulness to one and only to one. And so I would encourage you, uh, as you try to navigate the, the quicksand uh, of sex in 2016, is to put all sexual sin in the same category. And we don't do a very good job of this usually. We go, uh, I don't want to hold my, my friend accountable who's sleeping with his girlfriend, but I can't have anything to do with the gays. If it's outside of that definition of one man, one woman for life, then it's sin, and it goes into the category of sin. And so that includes my gay friends, but it also includes my friends who are sleeping with their girlfriends. It's sexual sin. I love you, but you're outside of God's plan for sex. It includes uh, the wife that's cheating on her husband, but it also includes uh, my friend who struggles with sexual addiction and pornography. I love you, but you're outside of God's plan for sex. And so into all of these sexual sins, God speaks and he says, you want real satisfaction? You're just not going to find it there. That's that new car smell all over again. Like, really? You think this is going to be the thing that finally drives your identity to the point that you can stop chasing? Really? It's important for us to realize uh, that Paul condemns sexual sin in verse 27. And then in verse 29, he calls out every other sin. Sexual sin is no more and no less damaging than these others. All of them create a rift between us and God. This is what sin does. Sin, so small, it's the size of a grain of sand, but it's enough to separate ocean from dry land. And sin, so big that it causes a cosmic fraction, and hell is the only relevant reaction, uh, a righteous response. Sexual sin is no more and no less damaging than covetousness, strife, and deceit, and gossip, and pride, and boasting. And I pick those because I, can, I know that we all struggle with those. And so he calls out sexual sin, and then he also calls out boasting, pride, lying, strife, gossip, covetousness. There we go. Sin is not something to be trifled with. And the problem that, that we have is we usually try to figure out where is the line between sin and, and not sinning. And we get as close as we possibly can to that. We don't even realize that there's a lion on the other side of that that's reaching for us and trying to pull us over the line. I think we need to ask ourselves, what do we do about our sin and the problem? Because whether you're uh, a, a heathen degenerate that, that, uh, that revels in your sin or you're somebody that pretends like it's not there, it is. If sin is a disease, then it requires a cure. Otherwise, we just subject ourselves to, or resign ourselves to just suffering forever. Have right? you ever seen somebody with cancer? I think... Uh, Everybody can go, I, I know the visual. To the person who sits down with their doctor and he says, I got bad news, you have cancer, but I have good news, it's treatable. Let's talk chemo, let's talk radiation. That person has a totally different outlook than the person who sits down and goes, I have cancer, I have nothing, there's nothing I can do. 
And so sin in our lives is, is cancer. It will kill us. But we have to find a cure or we'll just waste it away. Our sin will consume us. Let me start by telling you what doesn't cure your sin problem. Um, going to church doesn't cure your sin problem. Uh, any more than walking into a hospital makes your cancer go away. Go to church, but it's not the whole solution. Go to, go to the hospital, but don't expect your, your cancer to go away just by walking through the doors. To try and make yourself stop sinning as though that were possible won't cure your sin problem any more than swearing off cigarettes would cause your cancer to go away after you've already got it. Sin is already, uh, the stain of sin is already present in your life. You can't make it go away. Being outwardly good and pretending to be healthy doesn't cure your sin problem any more than pretending to not be sick would make somebody who's sick not be sick. Yeah, it's good. Double negative. We're good. Going to church doesn't fix your sin problem. Pretending it doesn't, it's not there doesn't make it go away. And stopping and not sinning again does not make your past sins go away. What makes them going away is taking them to the cross. Um, repent and take your sin to the cross. Uh, death on the cross is actually what your sin bought for you. What our actions actually earned us is the cross. But God took upon himself the weight of sin that was re reserved for us. A weight that is so significant that only the blood of an innocent one is acceptable and worthy. And so rather than make light of it or minimize the size of our sin, we should marvel, not at our sin, marvel at grace. Marvel at grace. Uh, when God's mercy to us is strong enough to take away any trace of sickness. Uh, in fact, he says we're a new creation. Sin's grip has been loosened forever. Uh, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer, right? Martin Luther said that he started his 95 pieces by saying, all of life is repentance. It's the first line from Martin Luther's uh, thing that he hammered up on the door of the chapel. Uh, repentance is just what we do. I've heard Keenan say, fish swim and birds fly and Christians repent. Honestly, if we can learn to repent in little moments, it might save us from some of those big crises. If we can learn to repent uh, of, uh, of the small sins that happen in the dark, if we can learn to allow God dominion in, in those areas, maybe we can avoid some of those huge 15-car pileups. And repentance is simply this. Um, admitting to yourself that you are sick with sin. Uh, and you need Jesus' power to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he breaks the bonds of addiction. He breaks the chains that sin has on us. Um, and we're set free. This is what repentance does. And repentance is not just for bad times. Because when you're walking out of the store with a, a stolen t-shirt tucked under your shirt, that's not when that sin started. That sin started when you desired something else more than you desired God. And so learning to repent in that moment can save you from the shoplifting charges. We have to learn to treat the disease rather than just the symptoms. Um, 
If I asked you, what's the dominant pain point in your life right now? Like, what's the sin that you just can't get past and it's just causing you grief? Um, I'd probably get 20 different responses from 20 different people. But that's just who we are. Um, what's most likely, though, is that you would identify the symptom rather than the cause. You would, uh, like my, I would say, I'm just having trouble trusting God. Uh, I'm not good at faith. I don't spend enough time in prayer. Um, I stress to the point of gray hairs over money and other stuff that I, I can't really control. Uh, but you know what, what's at the root of that? Is that I've made an idol out of control. The desire to be in charge of every aspect and to manage my circumstances. Uh, not praying enough isn't the problem. That's a that's a symptom of the real problem, which is that I think I'm the one that should be in charge. And what I'm feeling and responding to is being out of control, not holding the reins as if I was ever in control in the first place. Um, but I want to end you with this. Um, the solution starts when I can identify that root cause. I can repent of my idols uh, I can reorder my thinking to say, God, you are in control, and you are for my good, and I don't have to fear anything when you have the reins. When I can do that, I can trust God, God will lead me out of this place of uh, idolatry, addiction to sin, and he can show me the real meaning of grace. Okay? That's that quote that I started with, Dorothy Sarius, where she goes, if men will not understand the meaning of judgment, they'll never come to understand the meaning of grace. If we don't understand our sin, then we don't understand the solution. But in understanding our sin, it has to push us to grace. Don't allow it to push you to, to uh, like, being over... Don't allow your sin to make you helpless. Because you're not. Because in Christ, you're a new creation. He's come to take that sin away. Uh, I'll pray, and, uh, and then we'll sing some more. We'll take communion. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for tonight and just the chance that we've got to get these people together in one room. Uh, Lord, I pray that that we would learn to see sin the way that you do. Not make too much of it or too little, but put, it, put everything in its right place and believe that you are bigger, that our sin is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Uh, we love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.